Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tane. Today, what will the approval and rollout of vaccines mean for the New Zealand and global economies? We're not going to be uh, necessarily completely in control of when the vaccines arrive in New Zealand. What I want to do is make sure that as soon as they are ready to arrive in New Zealand, we're in a position to be able to administer them. Then, as businesses and our tourist mecca cling on for life, we ask if vaccinated tourists will be allowed into the country before people here have received the jab. I'm not personally lobbying to get tourists back in the country. I am personally lobbying on behalf of the tourist industry. I mean, I want tourists as much as anyone. Then, from academic to cabinet minister, Aisha Verrill looks back at 2020 and tells us how she intends to use her expertise to help the government's pandemic response. Do you get better information now? Well, I'm less focused on the scientific information that I had when I was an academic and more focused on the practical. That interview shortly. But first, health officials in the UK will begin distributing the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in the next few days, after the British regulator ruled it safe for use. Here, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says the first New Zealanders are likely to be vaccinated in March of next year. So what will the vaccine distribution mean for our economy? ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zolner and, Eco- and Economist Rodney Jones from Wigram Capital Partners. Kia ora and welcome to Q&A. Sharon, I will begin with you. The Prime Minister says Kiwis are likely to be vaccinated for the first time in March of next year. Distribution is beginning in the next few days in the UK. What will that mean for the economic recovery? Well, it's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not going to be an instant light switch. We're not going to suddenly open the border um, overnight. But it does mean, encouragingly, that our elimination strategy is sustainable, that we're not going to end up in this situation where New Zealand's the only country in the world without herd immunity, which was a fear at the beginning. So there's a path out of this. So that should support confidence and spending. It should allow a graduated opening of the border, uh, a bit of life, hopefully, a lifeline for our tourism sector, um, and just generally we can all just return to some kind mm. of normality. Um, but there will be a rough patch before then. But it's, it's really encouraging news, though. How, how rough? <laughs> well, basically at the moment what we've seen is that fiscal and monetary policy has been incredibly successful this year. Uh, that's with the fiscal policy filling the income hole through the, through the wage subsidy and monetary policy, of course, unfortunately mostly through the housing market, but it certainly has created a, a vibe on the street and supported spending. Uh, but both monetary and fiscal policy do bring forward spending from the future, so they have to be used judiciously. Uh, we've seen the fiscal stimulus winding right back. So what we haven't seen yet is the true pain of the tourism sector kicking in. So we think sort of around the turn of the of the year and the first six months of next year will be when we actually finally have the real slowdown, um, the actual mm. feel the income hit. Rodney, from a global perspective, what are you expecting to see as uh, the Pfizer vaccine um, begins to be rolled out in the UK? Well, it's going to be volatile. Um, you know, we've still got a full-blown outbreak in the US. Europe and the UK have made big progress in the last three weeks. Mm. So what we're seeing is, you know, countries can bend the curve. Once we get the vaccine deployed, and particularly as we get through the seasonal peak, you remember back in April, May, countries contained the virus faster than we expected. And I think that will be the path with the, with the vaccine once it's been deployed in a, in a, in a better seasonal. So winter is still going to be tough, but as we come out of winter, we can actually look towards elimination in a number of countries. You know, Austria looked like they'd eliminated, then they've had another, you know, that summer outbreak. Surge, yeah. Yeah, so as we work through that, I'm actually more optimistic than at any point. I think it will work, it will lower the R value, 
and we can hope for elimination. What can we learn from previous epidemics and pandemics when it comes to economic recovery once the pandemic is over? And I think back to 1918 and as well as the, the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong. Yeah, well, we had a boom in 1919 and then the Fed over tightened in, into early 20 and that turned into a depression, but we had a boom. Same thing coming out of 03, 04. There'll be pent up demand. Our biggest risk is supply chains the ships, the dislocation in transport, mm. the dislocation in airlines, inventories in Asia falling sharply. Um, we're going to have issues. We're going to have economic issues getting goods. You know, we've had a surge as people have worked from home, stayed at home. They've bought goods, not services. And we're going to start running out of goods. Sharon, you touched on this before. On the domestic front, just how difficult are things going to be for the tourism sector and those tourism-adjacent businesses, the likes of retail and hospitality businesses in Queenstown and Rotorua over the next few months? Yes, yeah, so the tourism's incredibly seasonal. So actually closing the border in the winter was a win insofar as we normally export more Kiwis to warm beaches than we import skiers. But from this time of year onwards, it flips around the other way, and aggressively so. And those foreign tourists are bigger spenders. Uh, than the Kiwi tourists as well. So uh, it's useful to think about it in the counting sense. The, the, uh, the border closed after a very strong summer, mm. with plenty of cash, then the wage subsidy arrived, very generous, no questions asked really, very few questions asked, and then a surprisingly good winter. But from now on, a lot of firms are going to be bleeding cash, and so it's just a, a race. How long can they hold on, uh, and when will we get a travel bubble with so, Australia? So do you think they will be able to hold on long enough for us to wait for a vaccine, or are we reliant on getting that travel bubble open? Well, I think there will unfortunately be some firms who simply mm. don't make it. That, that wage subsidy was very effective, but it was unbelievably expensive. So it did have to wind back. Uh, fortunately, of course, many companies found themselves uh, in the position of, of actually making embarrassing levels of profit, which is, is fortunate, I say, because it's better than the alternative. If the wage subsidy had been too slow and too stingy, and we've been sitting here looking at all of these viable firms that could have made it. Mm. Um, but it was very expensive, and so unfortunately, you know, they were... Open quite open from the outset that they couldn't save every job. Um, but the, the little businesses, uh, they will pop up again when the time is, is right, mm. when the opportunity is there again. Rodney, is New Zealand at this point in the response being too cautious when it comes to our border policies? So that's where 21 is different to 20. Caution was, was fantastic. We did move early, as we say, we moved early, we moved hard. We led the world. We kind of developed mm. the strategy of, and then afterwards of chasing down, using genomic sequencing, chasing down the virus. So we led the world, but Australia's followed us. South Australia had an outbreak. They locked down, they contained it in a week. We thought it would last longer. There was a leakage from MIQ in New South Wales last week. They put a thousand people in isolation and they stopped it dead. So we're seeing the same thing in Vietnam. We're seeing the same thing in Thailand. Lots of countries are now using our strategy, which means do we have to wait for a vaccine or can we accept that they've eliminated it? Yes, there's risks, but for a New Zealander returning from Australia now, the risks are in MIQ, not in New South Wales or Victoria. Right. And that's the change. Right. And then if we have, say, tourists coming from the UK or the US who have received vaccines that are then going to be available in New Zealand, at some point do we need to be asking whether or not those people should be allowed into New Zealand as tourists without going through uh, MIQ? Yeah, so that's the risk in the US, is that with the history of kind of bad vaccines, mm. that the US is the last to exit this. And so kind of having some QR code, which the Australians have proposed, mm. that goes with your passport, having that information, which vaccine have you had? If it's AstraZeneca, maybe not. If it's Pfizer or Moderna, 
Certainly. Mm. So, so we're going to need a modulated strategy, and that's where the complexity. 2020 was about shutting down the science coming through and chasing down the virus. Mm. 21 is about a modulated response, different policies, much more dynamic, much more complex. Sharon, what do you see happening on the housing front over the next couple of quarters? <laughs> yes, well, our forecasts still have a wobble in there in the first half of next year, just as the economy itself just stagnates a little bit, and um, as that rush from the stimulus mm. gives way to the actual pain. Um, but it is also true the housing market's been quite insulated from that income pain because it's been concentrated in lower paid sectors that unfortunately a lot of those people were locked out of the housing market long ago. So you can certainly tell a story that it just keeps charging on. But when you've got house prices going up strongly and incomes going the other way, you, you do worry about the sustainability of it all. So I guess what we have is the Goldilocks scenario where it cools down and just settles down for a period and then slowly, moderately increases. That's kind of the dream. Mm. Um, nobody wants house prices to go up or down, but the done things just will never stay still. Yeah. How likely is that Goldilocks? <laughs> I would say the, the range of possible outcomes in the housing market is unusually wide at the moment, but I, I do fear that if it carries on charging ahead mm. for, uh, over the next six months or so, then we are definitely increasing the risks of something ugly down the track. Mm. Rodney, I know you've been keeping a close eye on the Australia-China stoush over the last couple of weeks. What do you make of it? Well, I think, you know, Trump kind of coarsened the global discourse. China's copied mm. him with kind of foreign policy by tweet and tariff, mm. which is what they've imposed on Australia. But, you know, Scott Morrison should never have responded, never respond to a tweet. He should have shrugged his shoulders. I mean, this guy, Zhao Lijian, who, who did it, it was a junior guy in the Islamabad embassy, the Chinese embassy in Islamabad. Mm. He was a nobody. He's just there to provoke. You know, he's kind of a Lord Haw Haw. Very successfully. Yeah, so just <laughs> ignore him. Just ignore him. You know how difficult that is, Ronnie. You've been on Twitter before. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the discipline. Yeah. And that's where our response was right. Yeah, this is completely inappropriate, but we're not going to say anything more. Yeah. Does this speak to, to how close the Australians have, have tied themselves to the Americans over the last couple yeah, of years? Yeah, and they're, breaking, they're struggling to see the, 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 mm. the change. They kind of shadowed the Trump administration, which is always going to be a mistake. It was a big mm. bet. And so they've kind of drawn that that eye, the, mm. you know, the big eye, if you like, in China has been drawn to them, but they've also attracted that. Mm. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about Kiwi Chris Liddell, who is, of course, the US nominee to be Secretary General of the OECD, a, a close advisor to President Donald Trump. How do you rate his chances? Oh, low to none, more none than low. It, it, you know, Janet Yellen is the top economist mm. of her generation. She's Treasury Secretary. She's bringing in a really strong team of people who have spent their life in policy. He's a businessman. Mm. You know, he, he's not an economist. He's, he's not, uh, you know, th there's, there's absolutely no way this US administration is going to back him. OK, a year from now, I want to ask both of you, where do you see our economy sitting 12 months from now? <laughs> It'll probably feel a little less euphoric because you were talking about how you get a boom after a pandemic. I think New Zealand's actually been a little foreshadowing of that, of what the globe's going to go through. Mm. Um, I think the big question for me is what inflation will be doing because mm. there is a risk that just as things start to feel really better, that we have these supply constraints you were talking about, but demand is booming, you get inflation, and then central banks are suddenly between a rock and a hard place mm. uh, in a way they haven't been before. It's not in our forecast, but it's just sitting out there as a really 
interesting tail risk. But I, I would say that by the second half of next year, we, we should be back on the up, uh, but less of a <laughs> crazy V and, and more of something sustainable. Right. What do you think, Rodney? In 2020, Storehouse is impossible to forecast, something we knew anyway. Uh, I, I agree with Sharon. I mean, these supply shocks, we could end up with an, you know, an inflation burst, but I think that we're going to be in much better shape. I think by the summer, the northern summer, mm. the world will be healing and resuming, and 21 is going to be nothing like 20. All right. Let's hope so. Thank you very much for your time and, and uh, contributions throughout the year. Sharon Zolna and Rodney Jones. After the break, we will ask the Tourism Minister what the vaccine news means for businesses that are just hanging on in our biggest tourist towns. And given this is our last programme of 2020, this morning we're going to look back at some of the highlights from throughout the year. And we will start with the multiple leaders of the National Party. We are devastating our economy, we're curtailing freedoms, and so the sooner we can get out, the better. I'm not going to go through every single policy that we've had in the last uh, five years saying, will it change, will it not? Uh, the whole country's come through a crisis, the scale of which we've never seen before. Why do you think people always ask you mm. if you want to be the National Party leader or Prime Minister? Oh, I think people often ask that because it's a headline. What an extraordinary week it has been in politics. It's just what it is, Jack. I mean, the reality is I've got integrity. Have you caught your breath yet? Oh, good morning, Jack. What changed? Why are you introducing these restrictions now? We've constantly been looking at what's been happening uh, with uh, international transmission and making decisive, clear decisions early uh, in order uh, to reduce transmission in New Zealand. Is your advice that we can still avoid large-scale community spread? Uh, that, has to be, um, that has to be the goal. But what I'm very clear on is we will see more cases in New Zealand. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking to me on March 15th, the morning after the government announced everyone arriving in New Zealand would have to self-isolate. Of course, no industry in Aotearoa has been more greatly affected by COVID-19 than the tourism industry. Despite the government wage subsidy programme and targeted help for strategic tourism assets, many businesses in places like Queenstown are still crying out for help. I spoke with Tourism Minister Stuart Nash and asked if tourists can show they've been vaccinated, will they be welcomed into New Zealand? Well, this is, you know, this is the process we've got to work through. You know, what we're hearing at the moment is a sort of 95% efficacy. Uh, I'm not too sure what that exactly means uh, in terms of you know, people coming in bringing COVID. We do have to take a risk a risk-based approach. And let me give you one example. In the, uh, in the latest MyOB small business survey, mm. The, the one thing that concerned businesses the most, it was over 80%, was the return of COVID. So, you know, we, no, we make no apology for having a risk-based approach and a health-based approach. But what I would say is, you know, every single week, it just seems we're closer and closer to the global borders opening again. But I, I certainly can't give you a date. Uh, uh, of course, I mean, I think everyone understands... Sorry to interrupt. I think everyone understands that there is a risk-based approach and, of course, no-one wants to see a large-scale outbreak mm. of COVID-19 in New Zealand. But there is a central mm. question there. If we are trusting these vaccines and we are trusting the processes for the authorities in authorising the use of these vaccines and the likes of the UK and the United States... Why wouldn't we allow people who have been vaccinated to visit New Zealand as tourists? Well, Jack, the first thing I'll say, if you're asking me for a date, I can't give you one. No, no, if I just... you're asking I just, me I just, for the I just, process... Yeah, I just, that, I just... What I want to know, sorry, I just... Yep, no, what no, I want to no. be clear about is, will we let people who've been vaccinated into New Zealand, even if all New Zealanders haven't been vaccinated? 
At some point, we will, but what the process looks like between where we are at the moment and where that, uh, where that end game is, where all uh, visitors who have been vaccinated and, and what proof that looks like can come into the country, I can't tell you at this point. But, but certainly what I will say is it is looking good in terms of global developments on a vaccine. So what will you need to see before you sign off on, on that next stage? Well, obviously, this is a Cabinet decision. Look, can I make a suggestion? If you really want to know about an uh, in-depth in about our COVID response and what that looks like uh, from an operational perspective, perhaps you need to talk to the Minister in charge of COVID response, who is Chris Hipkins. Uh, we get updates on Cabinet. Uh, I read the same articles as you read on the, yeah. uh, in the newspapers and on the news. But all I can say is this is, you know, we are discussing this. Uh, mm. Uh, but the process of going from where we are at the moment to having open borders where people can come through our airports and out into our communities mm. uh, has not come before Cabinet yet, uh, is in the process of being developed. But in terms of giving you a timeline or a date or a mm. process, I can't at this point in time. I should say, I'm, 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 I'm well aware that, that your responsibilities don't directly... Um, relate to the COVID-19 response, but there is certainly crossover, isn't there? Because there are however many tens of thousands of workers in New Zealand's tourism industry desperate to get tourists back in the country, wanting to know if this vaccine news is likely to change their prospects in the coming months. Let me ask this, Minister. Are you personally lobbying your colleagues in Cabinet to get tourists back in the country? No, I'm not personally lobbying to get tourists back in the country. I am personally lobbying on behalf of the tourist industry. I mean, I want tourists as much as anyone. And, you know, make no bones about this, Jack, I know that the tourist sector in New Zealand, or certain segments of the tourist sector in New Zealand, are doing it really, really tough at the moment. And I know they will continue doing it tough until those borders are open and we can get international tourists back in here. But we do make no apology for taking a risk-based approach. And there would be nothing worse if we did this too early, let international visitors back in, something went wrong, and after all the hard work we had done, we let COVID in because we hadn't got the process right. So when I say I'm not advocating to have tourists back in, I'm advocating on behalf of the tourist industry, but, you know, Minister Hipkins uh, is the minister responsible for the COVID response. Yeah. Uh, briefs Cabinet. Uh, there is a risk-based approach to this. We are being very cautious, but we are optimistic that, in fact, um, all the news that's coming out of the US, the UK, uh, is positive for an opening of the borders when we are ready. But I can't give you a date when that looks like, I'm afraid. I know there's a lot of concern in Queenstown about the state of the international tourism industry. And, and, and these aren't necessarily the, the tourism businesses that have been supported by the government so far, but the peripheral businesses, the, the, the likes of businesses working in the retail and hospitality industries. Um, before COVID-19, 70% of Queenstown's tourists uh, were international visitors, with Australians being the largest number. Have you any updates for us on when that Australian travel bubble might be up and running and, and when businesses in Queenstown might see Australian tourists back? No, I haven't got an update on that. What I can tell you is the Prime Minister uh, is talking uh, with her counterpart, Scott Morrison, in Australia. Uh, I understand there is still a little bit of tension in Australia between state premiers and the federal government. Um, Minister Hipkins is talking to his counterpart there. So it's not as if there aren't any conversations going on. Um, but at this point in time, I can't give you a date for when those borders mm. are going to open with Australia or when there is going to be a bubble with Australia. But please believe me, Jack, uh, we are working on this. It is something we want, 
but we will not do this until we are, you know, until we are very clear that we're not creating undue risk for the New Zealand people or the New Zealand economy. Because again, there'd be nothing worse than the, than the hard work that we had done as a nation to have that all disappear because we hadn't done things right or we'd been too quick in opening the border. Is there any scenario in which we might see international visitors come here for the America's Cup in March? Uh, look, it's very hard for me to comment. At this stage, uh, it doesn't look like that will be the case. Um, but again, um, you know, I don't know uh, how that tension between your federal government and the state government will be resolved in Australia. Uh, I'm not too sure at this point around what... Well, none of us are too sure at mm. this point what conversations will be had in January, February between the New Zealand Prime Minister and the Australian Prime Minister or between Minister Hipkins and his counterpart in Australia. Um, so what I would say with regard to that is, look, let's just wait and see what happens. There is a lot of water to go under the bridge, and it's not simply a matter of, you know, Jacinda calling Scott and saying, hey, look, it's looking pretty good. How about we open the borders now? As you can imagine, there is a lot of work to do. There's a lot of process... Um, to, to put in place. And as mentioned, we make no apology for taking a conservative, risk-based approach to this. But at this point, let's just wait and see what happens. Yeah, I, I mean, I know in this portfolio you've said you, you unashamedly want to focus on, on high-value international tourists. And, I, I mean, in the eyes of many, that America's Cup date in March would be a great opportunity if we could safely get in high-value visitors. Yeah, but at the moment what we've got is, uh, you know, the, there's the risk that the fruit in our orchards might not be picked. And so it's probably, in terms of our economy at this point, uh, wise that we get these 2,000 RSE workers in so our fruit gets picked, our, our regional economies yeah. um, survive this, this season and we get to export to the world what we produce. So, you know, as you can imagine, there are a number of competing elements that the government has to consider every time we look at uh, who comes across our border, who goes into quarantine, uh, what we use those limited space in quarantine for. So again, Jack, this is, you know, this is pretty, this is a complex process and we've got to make sure we get it right. Is there likely to be more targeted government funding to support tourism businesses in 2021? Well, I'm having conversations with the Minister of Finance. Uh, there is a budget that will come out in May. Um, let's wait and see what happens with that budget. But, you know, I'm, I'm well aware, as mentioned, that there are a number of businesses, and certainly in places like Queenstown, that were very reliant on the overseas visitor market um, that are doing it really tough. I don't underestimate that. Um, but, look, we, let's just wait and see. As you, as you are well aware, uh, the government has spent a significant amount of money supporting businesses up and down this country. Uh, we've spent a significant amount of money, $400 million supporting tourism businesses. Uh, we haven't got uh, an unlimited pot of money, mm. um, but I am also aware that uh, you know, we need to ensure that our iconic tourist infrastructure is ready to go when the borders are ready to open. That was Tourism Minister Stuart Nash. Former epidemiologist, now Cabinet Minister Aisha Verrill will be with us shortly. But before that interview, one of the first people in New Zealand to publicly identify just how impactful the virus would be was Sir Bob Jones. This is an interview at the start of March when New Zealand had just one suspected case of the virus. We're going into a fairly serious recession, uh, which is unavoidable, uh, but that's going to be relatively short. Two years will all be over through the virus. You know, I mean, New Zealand's going to take quite a big hit. Mm. 
Rotorua, Queenstown, this sort of thing, and then the flow on the airlines, they're going to have to bail Air New Zealand out, I would say, this year. Mm. Uh, but that'll be going on all over the world. It, it, the economic Im uh, impact of this thing, mm. but such is life. When we went into lockdown, we had the ability to trace the contacts of 50 cases a day. I think that needs to be closer to 1,000 for us to safely come out of lockdown. Contact tracing does not have to be perfect. You will miss some people, but it has to be done at scale and, and quickly. Do you have confidence that the Ministry of Health can get its contact tracing up to the standard where it would be acceptable to move to level two next week? They were on track and working on all my recommendations really hard, so I hope so. That is Aisha Verrill in her very famous bookcase. Of course, we started this year interviewing Aisha Verrill in her capacity as an Otago University epidemiologist. Now, of course, she's one of New Zealand's newest cabinet ministers. She's not directly responsible for the pandemic management in the same way as the health minister and COVID-19 response minister. But I asked Aisha Verrill how the government is using her expertise to inform its policy decisions. Well, uh, I'm included in a lot of the conversations about COVID, obviously, at, at Cabinet. Uh, we take those decisions collectively. And I'm able to bring my real-world experience as, um, uh, as a doctor and someone experienced in the health system to our decisions around uh, the COVID response and the vaccine. How has your information feed changed from you know, be being in a position as an epidemiologist to being within Cabinet? Uh, well, obviously, you get all the information from the public service, and that's just so important for making practical, uh, pragmatic decisions about mm. what, how we're going to do things in the COVID response, because obviously you're aware what the, where our resources are. Do you get better information now? Well, I'm less focused on the scientific information that I had when I was an academic and more focused on the practical information that you get about our response. So, so would you say you get a... You, I mean, do you get more information? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you should see my reading back. <laughs> is, there a, is there a tension between those ministers who are you know, directly responsible for the COVID-19 response and yourself at the moment? No, I think everyone uh, recognises that keeping New Zealanders safe from COVID is our, our, our key priority, really, as a government, and we are working together as a team for that. What do you make of the vaccine news this week? It's really encouraging that uh, the vaccine development and a number of vaccines appear to, well, it's progressing really quickly, and the early uh, unofficial estimates look really encouraging. Is it likely that people who have been vaccinated will still be able to transmit the virus. Do we know that yet? Yeah, so I think people are being very cautious about that because we haven't seen a, a study confirming that they can't transmit. So it is right to be cautious at this early stage. I think we'll find out very soon uh, whether or not uh, there's a transmission blocking effect from the vaccines. Right. As soon as you see those big studies, ro uh, big uh, rollouts in North America and in Europe, UK, they'll, they'll start to be a signal. I know we're still asking you to have your epidemiological <laughs> hat on here, but, but it, is that the sort of thing we would expect? Usually when you would have a vaccine, would you expect people to not be able That's to That's normally the, the case. That's normally the case, but we're in a new world and I think people are just being cautious to make sure that we... Um, uh, do know that before we say that. Right. So, so presumably that information would inform decisions made at the Cabinet level in the future regarding border openings and that sort of thing. Correct. Right. Is it likely we wouldn't open the borders until we know for sure that people who've been vaccinated can't transmit the virus? 
Uh, that might be one of the factors, but obviously there'll be a lot of other things under consideration. And that, I mean, one of the main ones will be how effective the vaccines are. And, you know, as I said, that's promising, but we still haven't seen final results from many of the trials. From the information you're getting in Cabinet at the moment, when are we likely to get final word on just how effective these vaccines are? Uh, differs for um, different vaccines that are under consideration. You'll get some in the next quarter. Right. Do you feel optimistic? I mean, it's amazing. I've spent um, you know, 10 years working on tuberculosis in that field. It's taken 100 years and we still haven't got a decent vaccine. And here we are less than a year into the pandemic with what looks like really promising vaccines. W would you have expected that the world and, and vaccine developers could move this quickly? No, I didn't expect it. And remember, really authoritative figures were saying it'll be two years at the beginning of the pandemic. So then, casting forward, when do you think it's likely all New Zealanders will be vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, that's... Um, uh, that's I, I guess there's a lot of variables still going into that and um, just remember it's everyone's choice whether or not they get vaccinated so it's mm. not just down to government. Is, is it like feasible you think provided the rollout plans and the logistics around distribution go well that, that in a year's time this thing could be over? So it's not just about the actions we can take as a government about rollout, it's mm. also about vaccine availability from, from overseas. So I'm, I'm reluctant to put a timeline on it, but um, I think the government's eager to share information as we get it mm. around um, what those milestones will be. What about from a global perspective, though? Do, do you think... Look, how, how will the world look a year from now? So it's really hard to tell because these issues of... Uh, rollout will be different and you just think about the state of different healthcare systems around the world it's a it's a real challenge to do the vaccinations the routine childhood immunizations in much of the world and so um, uh, countries may struggle with rolling out a vaccine you're in this unique <coughs> position where you you understand things um, at an incredible depth from an epidemiological perspective but you also have a, a governance perspective now as well do you think it's unreasonably optimistic to think that in a year from now, the world will be somewhat back to normal. The whole world, I think that is unre un unreasonable. What, when then? Well, when do you think is reasonable at the moment? I think for the whole world, mm. what you're talking about is whether really poor countries with limited health infrastructure can get access to the vaccine. And there are some promising uh, steps towards that with um, the collaboration in COVAX and the Gavi vaccine mm. initiative. But uh, it'll take more support than what's currently on the table for the whole world to re return to normal. And would a reasonable time frame still be a couple of years from now or are we talking a decade from now? Well, we still haven't eliminated easily eliminatable diseases like polio. So... You know, it's a really big challenge. Yeah. How about 2020 for you personally? What would you have said if on December 6th last year someone said to you the world would be shut down by a pandemic and you would find yourself a year from now as a cabinet minister? Well, I would have focused on the first part <laughs> of the question because I had no idea I'd be a cabinet minister. But I think um, those of us who work in infectious diseases have always known that pandemics are possible. And in fact, I, I was involved as one, in one as a junior doctor when we had the swine flu pandemic. So uh, intellectually, that possibility about the pandemic was always there. What about the other part? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs>
That was former Otago University epidemiologist, now Cabinet Minister Aisha Verrill. Another expert we spoke to about the COVID-19 response was Taiwan Government Minister Audrey Tang, one of those credited with shaping Taiwan's world-leading COVID-19 response. In Taiwan, our counter-disinformation strategy uh, is very simple. It's called humor over rumor, because uh, we witnessed that both during the election and also during the pandemic, there's a lot of intentional public harm uh, messages being circulated on the social media. Audrey, it is a great pleasure to speak. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you, and live long and prosper. I'm asking why you didn't speak up at the time. It's, it's all did. well and good. It's all well and good you know, to look back at things in, in retrospect, James, isn't it? James, James, don't try and, don't My try name and is be. Don't try and be a Philadelphia lawyer with me. I've been around a long time. I spoke up where it matters, and I explained to you that when the government rose from the House, I was free then to say what the history of this matter was. Well, James, you the want to school wanted, funding responsible James, you for leaking look, James, information. James, you won't overtalk me. James, you're not a lawyer. Welcome back to q and I'm James Tame. That was one of several colourful exchanges with New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters from the election campaign this year. Along with the politics of the week, on Q&A we try and bring you the issues on the edges of politics as well. Reporter Fina Owen has covered a lot of ground for us this year. Here she uh, revisits some of her stories from 2020 and updates us on what's happened. Well, it's a water grab. First off, we headed to the Water Wars in the far north, where locals were claiming the sprawling avocado orchards would suck the place dry. The historic Gum Diggers Park in Wetlands is now surrounded by orchards. Its owner, John Johnson, told us it had affected his water supply. It dried up. My ball went dry. A neighbouring orchard agreed to supply him with water. He fears that's the future in the far north for residents, beholden to big business with rights to the aquifer. We caught up with John Johnson this weekend. So, John, what's been happening with the water since we saw you in February? Nothing. They'll plunder it until it gets contaminated. But once that happens, it's too late. It'll never recover. The regional council there told us a decision whether to approve a further 6 million cubic metres a year of water to the orchards will be made early 2021. Suddenly, a virus in distant China got real here. Q&A documented a provincial town on the eve of the first lockdown. So at the moment you don't have your results, you no. don't know whether you're positive or not. I have no idea. So are you going to do this for the whole month? If I have to, I have to. By April, the border closures were hitting the tourism sector hard. No income whatsoever. Rotorua was equally as bleak. Motelia Mike Gallagher told us he had two empty motels. The stress that that's brought on to, you know, to us and a lot of our colleagues has just been horrendous. <laughs> Few months later, the cavalry came to the rescue. Mike scored a contract with Defence, and the staff managing the isolation hotels are now staying in his motels. In early winter, we also visited Tiano Motelias. Unlike some of the bigger tourist centres, things haven't improved. The wage subsidy has come and gone. Some of them are doing it really, really hard, so we, we need help from central government. It's been really nice actually. A lot of Kiwis at the moment are realising this is the best time to explore 
Here we go. Here we go. Another day at the office. In June, we checked out one of Aotearoa's premier tourist attractions, Milford Sound. A tourist operator told us now is the time to assess the huge tourist numbers that were coming in there. It's been good for all of us. It's the golden goose, but the golden goose has been getting strangled. A local conservationist had expressed concern to us that sewage was going into Milford Sound. We added it was partly treated, but Milford Sound tourism want to put the record straight. There's no concerns around the sewage plant, its capabilities and the subsequent treatment processes. They're all within and meet the required resource consent. And new filters were put in this year, which means no smell. It's now a big shout-out to Kiwis. Now's the time to travel to Milford Sound. It is simply stunning. He's, he's kind of the invisible man. Yes, this is a man, Nationalist MP Dr Jian Yang, who New Zealand discovered in 2017 had earlier worked for Chinese spy agencies. If you say spying, then spying. After two years of shutting the door on our interview requests, or any requests with mainstream media, we decided to show viewers our attempts to talk to a member of parliament. I wondered whether he would be around uh, in the next few days. I'm not sure, but yes, I think you can write to him. Yes, yes, I, I've written to him. I've been writing to him for two years. Dr. Yang, some Fenner Owen from Q&A. Yeah. It's lovely to finally talk to you. A fortnight after our story, Jin Yang announced he would be leaving Parliament at the 2020 election. We've been unable to establish what Dr. Yang is doing now. Yep, campaign time, and we hit the road to seek out voters' concerns across the multi. All of a sudden, come election time, what happens? Things get done. You've got to have jobs, something to do, feed your family. You just don't know who to vote for, really. This country gave me the citizen, so I'm grateful for this country all my life. Election night, and we were there to witness a nautical spectacle. Well, everybody's got to get on and retire. We paid homage to a politician who first ran for Parliament in 1975. Yep, the power and the passion. We saw it. And last week, we tracked some of the new MPs starting out on their political careers. And like all our politicians, wondering what 2021 will bring. We'll have another go, shall we? That is reporter Fina Owen. Coming up, our panel is here. But first, here's a look back at some of the interviews from the morning after the New Zealand election. It's actually an incredibly humbling result for us uh, and one where, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to keep the faith of many people who've come across and voted for us, perhaps for the first time. So, you know, I've woken up this morning feeling delighted, pleased, proud and humbled. You can say what you like. We've had a shocking year, absolutely shocker, right from the start. I think Judith was put in a, a, an awful position. She took it up and she's done a great job. She, should he be the co-leader of the Māori Party instead of you? Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's just ipso facto, it follows um, that um, our, our only voice back in the House, a mm. liberated voice, an unapologetic voice for Māori uh, must be the co-leader. I think he's made demonstrable progress and I think he has, he represents a core constituency of this country that desperately needs representing. And so, from my point of view, that's worth the 
bloody noses and the criticism that I get externally for being here. Has it cost you personally to work for Donald Trump? Yeah. Yeah, um, certainly uh, financially it has, but that's not your question. Uh, yeah, I've, I, but the way I describe it, look, I've lost friends from being here. I haven't lost my soul. That was Kiwi Chris Liddell, a senior advisor to Donald Trump and the US nominee for Secretary General of the OECD. He spoke to me after the US election in the West Wing of the White House. It's time now for our panel. Matthew Tukaki, Executive Director of the New Zealand Māori Council. Sue Maroney, who's a Labour Party member, former MP and CEO of Community Law Centres of Aotearoa. And Ben Thomas, PR consultant and former national staffer. Kia ora koutou. I want to start by looking back at the week and then we will look back at the year. And Matthew, perhaps we can start uh, with the newly announced climate change yeah. <laughs> emergency in Parliament. What did you make of that? Well, look, it's good for media, it's good for marketing, it's good for branding, it's good for all of those uh, sorts of things. But what happens next? I mean, we could declare any sorts of emergencies in this country. Uh, an emergency when it comes to suicide, an emergency on homelessness, uh, an emergency on jobs. For Māori, I think the biggest thing is what happens next. Our Māori infrastructure, Māori infrastructure in our coastal areas, increasing king tides. So I think it's a great thing, you know, but how much of it was just about the noise um, versus the real mahi that needs to be done? Sue, what do you reckon? There has to be action to meet it. The, the time has passed for just talking about climate change. Um, it, actually, it needs action behind it. But I also think that naming it as, a, as an emergency is important. I'd like us to name inequality as being an emergency in this country as well because it's all very well to have a healthy environment, but if your people are sick, um, then it's not going to go very well at all. So I think there's a, there's a balanced approach to be taken, but it all requires action, and this government is so well placed to actually now take action. It has a very strong mandate, and we all want to assist with that going forward. Isn't, the conversa isn't this the same conversation we were having in the, in the last term where we said, oh, the talk is great, the symbolism is really important, but actually we are waiting on the action. Well, I think past the COVID response, there's been much more of a sort of stark recognition of the gap between rhetoric and action, you know, and delivery um, for, you know, Labour in particular's policies. Um, that one concrete point in the climate emergency declaration, which is the goal that the government becomes carbon neutral by 2025, you could almost see that sort of written in by crayon the night before uh, to kind of give a bit of substance to the announcement after they copped a bit of flack uh, over that rhetorical gap. Um, but again, look, they've promised to uh, electrify the government fleet of cars. Well, they actually promised that in 20, 2017. Mm. That was in their coalition agreement. They made less than 1% progress towards that. So it really is the time to sort of, you know, put up on that. But it's interesting that the government has chosen to do this now. I look back at the last year or so compared to the first year of the previous government and my sense was that Jacinda Ardern and her advisers were very careful about making big symbolic statements like this, knowing that they'd been hammered in the past when they said, you know, this is the nuclear-free moment of our generation. They'd been hammered in the past when they said, this is the year of delivery, we are the transformational government. Was there any line like that in the election campaign that we, that we can remember sticking out? I don't think so. So the decision to make this symbolic gesture probably means they do sincerely have intentions to follow it up. Yeah, I, I think the difference is this time around they have a significant mandate and it's quite an overwhelming mandate mm. but it has to be measured against all the other things that are going on out in the economy, out in society, in the community. 
I mean, uh, the, the risk of, of higher unemployment, the risk of greater numbers of small business closures, all of those different things are the practical day-to-day -day things that need to be dealt with. Um, so using their mandate for good, it's like, it's like a mm. comic movie, you know, a, a Batman comic movie, doing your things for good. Well, what are the things that are going to be impactful on everyday New Zealanders for the next three years? Get the job done. Mm. Well, where the government's been hammered in yeah. the past is on the concrete deliverables, the numbers, the statistics. Um, 10,000 Kiwi build homes, light rail, you know, spades in the ground by 2019. Um, and so they've been very careful not to put concrete targets mm. on anything so far. They've really learned that lesson about under uh, over promising and under delivering. And I think that's why the climate, the climate emergency declaration was something that they were ready to roll out immediately because it is basically all talk. Uh, then you add in that mm. target, which I think was a very late addition, um, and that's where maybe they got backed into a bit of a corner by the criticism. Mm. I think it's a sign of real confidence from this government that they actually have got a strong mandate and they're prepared to use it. That's what I see from this very early step into this, this territory, which is very challenging territory. That's a government of great confidence and I notice it um, actually seeing the government ministers mm. that I have never seen government ministers with such broad smiles and relaxed natures as I have. Well a majority will do that in, for in, in, in the last, <laughs> in the last 10 days, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that now needs to translate into that vision that they have and that many of us share about the sort of country that we can be and we are right on the premises of that right now. Interesting speeches from Rawiri Waititi and Debbie Naarewapaka mm. in uh, Parliament this week. How do you think they are looking to differentiate themselves from the last iteration of, Ma of the Māori Party in Parliament, Matthew? Well, well I think like, like the government, I mean they come with great hope and great aspiration for our people, uh, for Māori. Um, so I think they're going to really put themselves out there. They're, they're going to be unafraid and unapologetic. But then again, in fairness also to the Labour uh, Māori MPs in, in the caucus and in the ministry as well, they're also unafraid. They're also unapologetic. This probably empowers the Labour Māori caucus, it does. though, doesn't it? Well, it's going to keep them on their toes. They're going to have to be on point. And, and like I think Sue said, I mean, there is great confidence amongst that, mm. that group of people. But actually, um, if they get the formula right, they'll be in the hope business for the next three years and we'll be able to tick off a whole lot of different things that have been impacting Māori mm. for many years. But I think it's going to be colourful. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Quite a different strategy than that of the last iteration. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, Rauri Waititi is the youngest Māori Party MP ever. Um, and he really does represent, you know, a different generation. Mm. You, you went from the sort of avuncular and uh, auntie-like, you know, uh, Tariana, Dame Tariana Tudia, Sir Peter Sharples, and there's a very, you know, obvious decision here to be much more combative, um, to put much more of a stake in the mm. ground and say, you know, actually, th this is what has led up to this, putting it more in a historical context. Um, but I think you see actually see that across Parliament, where we, we do have a different generation of Māori leaders now. You know, the, the, the torch has been passed, you know, Winston Peters is gone, Shane Jones is gone, to Tohenere, guys like that are gone. You've got all these guys in their, in their late 30s, 40s, uh, you know, guys like Pene Hinare, uh, Rawari mm. Waititi, and, you know, it really is uh, a different generation of uh, Māori political mm. leadership coming through in Parliament. Sue, so some interesting comments uh, in today's programme from the Tourism Minister, Stuart Nash, when I, when I asked whether or not people who have been vaccinated and can show they have been vaccinated will be allowed back into New Zealand, if it might be possible those people would 
get here in time for the March America's Cup. How significant do you think the pressure is going to be for the government to, to reopen the border, at least to countries such as Australia where COVID-19 no longer poses the threat it perhaps once did? Well, it depends on where you believe that pressure's coming from. I think um, all New Zealanders want a level one Christmas. And so people, um, are, you know, they use their vote to mandate this government's judgment on getting it right around COVID-19. And I still believe that New Zealanders want the government to look at the expert advice. So I'm not the right person to say whether the borders should open or not, whether the vaccination is going to be successful. All of those things are for the experts to advise the government on. And I believe that's what got us into the fantastic position that we're in now. And I believe that most New Zealanders actually want the government to keep doing what they've been doing. But it's not unre unreasonable, is it, to, to ask for a degree of certainty when it comes to, you know, saying, for example, if, if we have reputable academic studies that show people who have been vaccinated cannot transmit the virus, then yes, we will open the border at that stage to those people. Well, we want the that's proof, not unreasonable. We do want the no, proof. I agree we want yeah. the proof, but, but, but requesting that certainty I don't think is unreasonable. I, I think it's not unreasonable. However, what we're dealing with is a recalibration of our domestic economy. That's what's going on mm. here today. I mean, you know, the previous guest talked about um, 1918. Uh, we uh, had a boom in the 1920s, followed by a depression, the same in 2003, 2004, followed by the global financial crisis in 2007. So we've got an opportunity to recalibrate the economy. Tourism has to be recalibrated fit for purpose for what will mm -hmm. happen over the next five to ten years. I mean, airlines, travel, all of that sort of thing has been completely disrupted. Uh, our, our hotels are now being used as quarantine facilities, uh, for goodness sake. So, um, and emergency mm. housing. And emergency <laughs> housing. And, yeah. and so, you know, it, it, this is the chance to push the big uh, green button, the big green reset button, um, but not do the same things that we've always yeah. been doing. This is a vastly different world. OK, I want to reflect on 2020 very quickly and get each of your thoughts on the performance of the government as a whole. And Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Ben, you can kick us off. Look, you can't argue with the results. Uh, the government was re-elected, well, Labor was re-elected with a huge majority and a huge mandate, and it was deserved. You know, we elect governments to steer us through crises. You'd have to say the wage subsidy was an outstanding success. The health response, which was really an economic response in the sense that we just shut down the economy, was also a success. Um, you know, there are huge problems coming out of it. The widening gulf... Uh, you know, in, in, in inequality, um, the fact that the costs have not been borne equally between, you know, poor or unemployed laid off workers in the regions and, you know, rich boomers looting the property of the country. Um, but look, the government did extremely well in, you know, what's a cliche, unprecedented circumstances. So. Oh, once in a lifetime election result. Actually, I've I've uh, didn't even see think that I would see that in my lifetime mm. um, under an MMP environment and um, seats like um, Islam and uh, Upper Harbour falling to Labour. I thought I would never see that in my lifetime. So it is a once in a lifetime opportunity that the government's now really got to capture and go forward with. The other thing that I found really exciting about 2020 was seeing the huge excitement about participating in the election. So the turnout was up and people. I think in New Zealand for the first time for a long time saw the relevance to their day-to-day -day mm. lives of decisions that would be made politically and you know to see that people um, actually now uh, celebrate a public servant um, like Dr Ashley Bloomfield yeah. is, is you know that's really exciting people understand the relevance of those sorts of decisions on their day-to-day -day lives and and that's great for us going forward. Matthew. 
Look, what a remarkable leader we have. We're very lucky, given the other leaders around the world, um, uh, let's quite frankly say it, uh, uh, some of the maloons and nut jobs. And it, it, we've got Jacinda Ardern, and I think we should be very thankful for that. Um, it is history making that we have a majority government with a significant mandate. But with that comes great responsibility. Um, we have to solve social inequity in this country. We've got to solve the homelessness crisis. We've got to do all of these things. And three years is a very short space of time to mm. do it. But if they can get on with the job today and start showing some results, some big, you know, big items and some low-hanging fruit, I think we'll be fine. But I actually think the standout performer for me uh, this year has been Dr. Ashley Bloomfield again. I mean, who would have thought a public servant um, from central casting, um, from the Ministry of Health, the boring department uh, of, uh, of the civil service, um, could mm. lead us in such a way, inspire us, give us confidence. Uh, so I think we've got a lot on the agenda, um, but look at who is leading us. It has been clearly a difficult year for the opposition. Mm. Will Judith Collins be the leader of the National Party 12 months from today? No, I wouldn't think so. Um, I think the National Party really need to sort themselves out. Um, they need to be unafraid and unapologetic about being more diverse. Um, that means greater representation from ethnic communities, from Māori. They don't even run in, in the Māori seats for crying out loud. Um, they, uh, they are pale, stale and male. Uh, and they, uh, they do not represent the diversity of New Zealand today. So sort that out uh, and then come back in three years' time and, and see what happens. So. Well, how are they going to sort that out? I think that's the biggest challenge for the National Party is that they um, are truncated in terms of numbers, but they've also lost um, the small amount of diversity that, that they did have. And they've got this enormous Labour Party caucus that, by comparison, is the most diverse caucus that they have ever had. So th how, do, how do you build that? Because these are people who are elected to Parliament. What do you do over the next three years to change that? There's really limited opportunity for them to do that. So I think they're going to be really hard up against it. I do think that they will continue to have changes in leadership mm. and I do think that they will continue to have um, squabbling internally. Uh, the, the, the discipline in the National Party has fallen apart um, literally from the moment that they went into opposition. Ben. Yeah, if the National Party MPs are smart, they will forget about leadership questions and their own personal ambitions for at least the next year. They'll knuckle down, they'll get familiar with their portfolios, they'll just concentrate on holding the government to account and becoming experts in the areas where they're trying to mark up mm. uh, ministers. Uh, in reality, that probably won't happen. We'll probably see more leaks, more infighting, um, and maybe a leadership challenge, although I think you know the odds would be that Judith will still be the leader at the end of the year. All right. Thank you so much for your time and contributions. We really appreciate it. Matthew, Sue and Ben. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week and this year. 2020 has been wild. And before we go, I just want to thank you for your support throughout this year. I also want to thank my colleagues for their work. The studio crews who turn up early every Sunday to put the programme to air. Fiona Cumming, Fina Owen, Sonia Wilson, Cara Pinnell, Phil O'Sullivan and our executive producer Claire Sylvester. On behalf of all of us, Merry Kremete, Merry Christmas. Enjoy your summer break and Happy New Year. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.